0: You can just stay standing for the reading of the scriptures this morning. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 25. you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 25. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. This is the word of God. God. And you can be seated. We begin a new sermon series this morning, a five-week sermon series where we are looking at what it means to be uh, God's peculiar people, a people who are odd, who are strange, who are different. Um, The Hebrew word for humanity is Adam. Now we think of Adam, maybe we think of Adam and Eve if we know that story from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. These two individuals who God places in this garden to co-labor with God, to steward God's creation along with God. But actually, Adam is a word that can be used and generally is used to mean humanity. The Hebrew word that means um, mankind, maybe, in your Bible. Humanity, Adam. So our question is, what does it mean for us to be Adam, to be those who are created in the image of God? In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we see this word used. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now that phrase there in this translation, human beings, is the same word for Adam. So when God talks about Adam and Eve, God is talking about, in a sense, humanity, human beings. What does it mean to be Adam in God's image, to be humanity in God's image, to be human beings in God's image? What what does that look like? What does that mean? We could spend a lot of time on that question. But fundamentally, and I think we see it in these few verses here in Genesis, is that to be human, to be a humanity, to be Adam, is to be relational, is to be created for relationship, relationship with God and with one another. Right? So we see this in Genesis. God says, I'm going to create humanity in my own image. There's a, a seemingly a desire on God's part to be in relationship with God's creatures. And we see uh, throughout the first couple of chapters, God and Adam, God and Adam and Eve talking with each other. We see God commissioning Adam and Eve to, to work the garden. There's a relationship in place here. There's care and there's love that characterizes humanity's relationship with God. But in these verses, we also see that there's this horizontal dimension of being human. It's to be in relationship with others. And so Adam and Eve, they're created for intimacy in in these verses here. Be fruitful and increase in number They're created for good work together, to steward God's creation together. Fundamentally, to be human is to be relational. Our sin results in a separation, a separation in our relationship with God and with each other when Adam and Eve, in a sense, displace God from the center of the garden and place themselves at the center instead, something fundamental changes about our relationship with God and with each other. And so Adam, when he hears God walking after he has sinned against God, what's his first instinct? Did you remember? He hides. He hides. Whereas before he would have gone out to meet God, to be in conversation with God, this time He and Eve hide. There's a separation now in the relationship with God. And then notice this in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. When God is searching for Adam after they have sinned, God asks, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Here is the separation with God. Now listen to Adam's response. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Separation now between Adam and Eve. Adam's first response is what? To throw Eve under the bus. It's the first instinct now is not relationship, but separation and division. And so we're created to be those created in the image of God. We're created for relationship, and yet we carry with us this very strong memory of separation of division. And I don't need to convince you of this, I don't think. We experience this regularly, don't we? The difficulty of relationships. Going into a bookstore and, like, go to the you know, relationship advice section, it's big. <laughs> There's a market for this. Why? Well, we know why. It's not easy. I was thinking about this. My... Um, my, my, my sister had a friend kind of all through growing up, and there was two different time periods where we, we lived close to this friend, so we are kind of neighbors. Um, and, and and my sister and her best friend, they had this love-hate relationship um, where one day they were, you know, best buddies forever, and the next day they were at each other's throats. Do you ever have a friend like that when you are a kid? Or today, maybe, you have that same... Um, and I remember this very vividly when I was in high school, so my sister and her friend would have been kind of junior high. We lived in Southern California, and, and we um, had this little neighborhood pool. And so one day we were at the pool, and this was in the summertime, and my sister and her friend, they're just getting into it. These, you can just imagine these two, like, little sixth-grade girls, right? Just going at it, standing next to the pool, and it's just escalating. They're yelling, you did it, you're like this, you did it. And all of a sudden, my, my sister's friend just pushes her into the pool. <laughs> She's flying backwards, lands on her back, and her friend goes storming off home. And they're, they're friends to this day. They're good friends to this day. I don't think they have that same dynamic in their relationship anymore. But there's something about that. I mean, it's funny a little bit to me, at least. There's something about that pattern of wanting this desiring this, coming back to this relationship, even when you push me into the pool, and yet finding it so hard, right? Hard to just maintain relationship. So hard to just rest in relationship. We know uh, separation. We know about divorce. We know about parents being estranged from their children. We know what it is to have had a friend who now falls in a different category. A former friend. We know these things. And, and, and the gospel, of course, is that Jesus reconciles us to God. The gospel is great news because we know this separation. We've experienced it. We know that this is a problem for us. And so Paul puts it this way in in Ephesians chapter 2, just a little bit earlier in the book we read from earlier. He himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is the good news that in Jesus we are reconciled to God and to each other. Paul uses this word humanity in our passage. Again, maybe in your Bible it's mankind or man. The Greek word here is anthropos. And again, there are Greek words that Paul could have chosen if he wanted to re- refer to a specific individual. But instead, like in Genesis, the language here is humanity. One new humanity that God is forming in Jesus. And so we're, we're pulled back to the Genesis story where God creates a humanity in his image. And now in Jesus, a new humanity. A new Adam is being created. Nod your heads if you're following me. Okay. This is the gospel. This is the, this is the great news that those of us who know in our guts what it is to be separated, divided, to know hostility. The gospel is that in Jesus, we've been reconciled to God and to one another. And so there is, of course, a, a, a temptation to kind of maybe just stop right here, right? And say, amen. That's the gospel. We're good to go. I believe it. And then we kind of look at our lives, right? And, 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 we, and we should maybe ask, so, so is it playing out for us? Is this reconciliation with God and with each other? Is it playing out in our lives? Are we experiencing this regularly? It's one thing to agree to assent to the gospel, to the good news, but is it happening? In your friendships? in your community group, in your marriage? Are your relationships characterized by this ongoing separation, pulling apart, or this reconciliation? What are we known for? Why why is it that it's not simply enough for us to say, I believe it. God did this in Jesus. I'm reconciled. Why, Why isn't that enough? I, I, I there's, again, probably many ways we could answer that question. But I think one very important way is to say that you and I, we carry with us this deeply ingrained memory of separation. And that doesn't just magically disappear when we submit our lives to Jesus. Would you agree? It doesn't just go away. We carry that with us. We've been formed by that. And in addition to that, not only do we carry this kind of innate memory of separation, we live in a world that knows separation, that pulls apart, that divides, that introduces walls, as Paul says, of hostility. And so we've been formed in these kinds of ways, and so we know betrayal, we know isolation, we know loneliness, we know competing loyalties, prejudices, unmet expectations. These are not theoretical things for us. We have stories and memories. And yet the promise of the scriptures is that we are a new people. Despite this memory that we carry with us, the promise of the scriptures is that in Jesus, we are in fact a new Adam, a new humanity. And so we should expect that our lives look different than they used to. And very specifically, we should expect that our relationships look different than the world that has formed us. This is the promise of the scriptures. I think this is why we see over and over again, especially in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, we see over and over again that we are urged to live into our identity as God's new people. God has said, you are now a new people. You were dead. You have been resurrected to new life. You are now the people of God, the body of Christ, the new temple, all these different metaphors. This is true. This has been accomplished. The cross is empty. So now live into it. Become who you are. This is active. This calls for us to step into something new, something different that we are not used to. And I want to say to us this morning that as we do this, as we more and more become God's new humanity, as we more and more come to exhibit what it means to be God's people, we will more and more become a peculiar people. Say peculiar. I love that word. An odd people, a strange people, a different people. As you and I together more and more lean into our identity as God's people, as reconciled people, we will more and more find ourselves standing out from the status quo. Amen? I think this is what we find in our passage this morning in Ephesians. There's a a pattern. I don't know if you noticed it or not. There's almost a rhythm In this passage, Paul says, this is what you were. And this is what you are. This is what you were. And this is what you are. This is what you were. And this is what you are. He does it three times in our passage. Did you pick up on that? Let's look at that. Let's look at that real quick. Verse 14 what you were. You were infants. You were tossed by every wind of teaching. You were influenced by deceitful scheming. This is what you were. Verse 17, you were darkened in in your understanding. You were ignorant. You had hardened hearts. You had lost all sensitivity. You were impure. You were greedy. This is what you were. Verse 22, your old self corrupted by deceitful desires. Ah, but there's always this counterbeat that Paul includes in this passage. This is what you were, but this is what you now are, verses 15 and 16, those who speak the truth in love. This is what you are, verses 20 and 21. You were taught the truth that is in Jesus. This is what you are, verse 25, those who speak truthfully to your neighbor. This is what you were. You carry this memory. You were shaped in this way. You know separation. But this is what you are now. Do you pick up the common theme in what you are now? Do you pick up the common word in all three of those? Anybody? Be bold. Say it. Truth. Truth. In all three of these, Paul's kind of counter-rhythm to what you were is, and now you are truthful people. It's an interesting word to choose. It's not one maybe that we normally think of when we think about what it means to be the people of God, to be truthful. That seems like Christianity 101, right? Don't lie. Got it. Good to go the decides to come back to this three times. This is what you were, but now you're truthful, people. This is what you were, but now you tell the truth. This is what you were, but now you speak truthfully in love to each other. What is truth? What is truth? You get to answer that question a lot of different ways. This is the question that Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? Christians answer this question, this kind of age old question in a very specific, very unique way. We can only talk about truth when we talk about God. And so the scriptures tell us over and over again in so many different ways that truth is, in fact, God. God is the, quote, true God, Jesus is, quote, full of grace and truth. The Holy Spirit is, quote, the spirit of truth. And so to speak about truth is to speak about God. And this, of course, is why Christians claim to know truth, to be able to speak about truth, because we know Jesus. There's a uh, verse earlier on in Ephesians, verse 13 of chapter 1, where Paul says, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You were included in Christ. This is important. It's not just that we those of us who've submitted our lives to Jesus, it's not just that we say that God is truth and we can know truth because we can know God through Jesus. It's not just that. It's that we also claim that when we come to know Jesus, we become truthful people. Paul says it's not just that you know about Jesus. It's not just that you believe in Jesus. It's that your life has now been included with Jesus. We might talk about the Holy Spirit of God coming to reside among us as well. So truth is not just something that's kind of out here that we try to get our heads around. Truth is God, and God coming to dwell with us, adopting our lives in Jesus, means that our identity now becomes truthful people. Again, nod your heads if you're still... We can know truth, but we are also defined by truth, known by truth. We are truthful people. And again, let me just kind of reiterate this. As we live into our identity as God's people, especially in this way, as we live into our identity as truthful people, we will look different than the world around us. If I can be very plain, I would put it this way. You and I inhabit a world that lies to us. And so to live as those whose identity is truth places us on the margins. What do I mean that we live in a world that lies? We could brainstorm about this all day long. Let me give you just one example. This week I went to a conference in the western suburbs on Thursday and Friday, and so I drove... The Eisenhower West, two days in a row. Anybody make that drive, kind of know that drive a little bit? Katie? Okay. There's a couple billboards. I just kind of, as you're getting out of the city, on the left when you're driving west. And uh, so I was thinking about truth and lies, and so, you know, I see these two billboards. The first is a billboard for beer. And the, uh, the, the image is very simple. It's just a, a very curvaceous uh, uh, a glass of beer. You didn't think I was going to say a glass of beer, did you? And the tagline is simply this. Isn't she beautiful? Something like that. Maybe isn't she lovely? Has anybody seen it? Am I getting the tagline right? Is that right? Is, isn't she lovely? Okay. Isn't she lovely? The second billboard right behind it, you can see both at the same time. Again, a fairly simple billboard. It's just a group of five or seven women wearing very small bathing suits. And I, it's advertising, I think it's a tanning place, salon, yeah. And, and I'm thinking about truth and lies, and, and I, I, I wanted to roll down my window as I was passing by and, and, and sort of shake my fist at these billboards and say, you lie! Or this Don Quixote, you know, chasing the windmills sort of thing. Because here in these two billboards are are lies about what it means culturally to be a woman. I mean, there's this very common advertising theme of comparing women and beer. And the stupid man always chooses what? The beer. I mean, it's just this very predictable trope, right? And here it is kind of writ large on this billboard. And of course, you know, the second one, it's, this is what it means to be a woman. This is, what, this is the color skin. This is the texture of hair. This is height, proportion. Oh, and it doesn't mean that you have intelligent thoughts or words. Mm-hmm. These are, of course, silent images. I think we could brainstorm a huge list of how we are lied to every single day. Would you agree? Every time we turn on the television, turn on the radio, conversations that we have, interactions with our coworkers, our boss, in so many, sometimes very blatant, but often very, very subtle ways, we are lied to. And so to be a people who don't just try to tell the truth because that's what good Christians are supposed to do, but whose very identity is as truthful people, places us at odds with the world. Would you agree? And so this is why I think Paul at the end of our passage says that to be a Christian person is to put off falsehood and speak truthfully. There is a stepping into this identity as the people of God, truthful people. So, so, so let me uh, just tell you three ways I think that we are called to tell the truth. Three ways that we can live into this identity as truthful people. The first is this. We tell the truth about ourselves. To be the people of God, to be the peculiar people of God, who identity is as truthful people, is to tell the truth about ourselves. Again, not simply an abstract thing, but what's true about us. Now, I don't mean this to sound kind of individualistic or or isolationist, right? Like, this is just about me in the corner, you know, telling the truth about myself, so I feel good about my, you know. No. You see, we can't enter into a real relationship with anybody if we don't first tell the truth to ourselves about ourselves. Some of you have had this experience of being in a relationship with someone who doesn't know the truth about themselves. It's hard. This is, I think, was one of the beautiful things that happened during our recent weekend, the Invitation to Racial Righteousness, where we spent the weekend together confronting complicated, tricky, sometimes very hard issues of race and ethnicity and privilege and how those things play out in our church and our community. And at different points, especially as we were in small groups, we had the opportunity to tell the truth about ourselves, the things that have formed us the things that have shaped us, the experiences that we've had, the baggage that we carry, the blind spots that we still struggle against. This is what it means to tell the truth about ourselves. I'm going to give a quick plug here. Carla wrote a really good reflection that you all need to read on our website about her experience at the invitation to racial righteousness. And Carla, one of the things I loved about your reflection was it was telling the truth. So please um, find time to visit the website and read that. When we tell the truth about ourselves, and when we come to see how important it is to tell the truth about ourselves, I think we begin to understand how important confession is. Say confession. Um, Confession is hard for me. It, It doesn't come natural. And yet, as as people who are uh, called to be truthful, confession becomes very, very important because it's in confession that we really are telling the truth about ourselves. The ugly stuff, the hard stuff, the sinful stuff. And, And by confession, let me be very blunt. I don't mean all by yourself in your bedroom in your prayers. I mean confessing to a sister or a brother in the faith. I heard somebody ask this question this week. You know, what, what is easier for you to do? Is it easier for you to confess to God by yourself or to a sister or to a brother? What's the answer? It's much easier to confess to God, right? Well, if we, if we thought about that for a minute, we'd understand just how backwards that is, Right? Confessing our sin before a holy, just, righteous, perfect God? That should freak us out! Confessing my sin to a fellow sinner who gets it, who sins all the time? That should be a piece of cake. But of course, it's the opposite, right? And because it's the opposite, it becomes very important that we find appropriate ways to confess our sins to each other. Because in that act, we are in fact confessing our sins to God. This, this physical, personal invitation by someone else whose life is submitted to Jesus invites us to truly not just quickly, Jesus, I'm sorry, i will move on, you know, but to truly confess our sin. Two things happen when we do this. One, we have the opportunity to speak truth about ourselves. I've had to make myself look good all week. I've had to impress my boss, my coworkers. Not anymore. This is where I messed up. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what's actually true in me. This is living, truthful identities. But here's the second thing that happens. When I confess my sin to somebody, that person then gets to also speak truth to me and say, you're forgiven. God forgives you. Not only that, this person gets to say, that's not your primary identity. Your identity isn't sinner anymore. It's child of God, and this too is speaking truth to ourselves. Amen. And so, and so, 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 when we think about confession, speaking the truth about ourselves in this way, we can think about confessing when I have sinned against somebody. When I've sinned against Brent, I confess my sin to Brent. I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. I apologize. I'm sorry. But other times, we, we need to confess maybe more of a private sin. Maybe I haven't sinned against somebody, but there is this thing that's true about me. I need to confess to a trusted friend, spouse, community group member. This is, this is what's actually true about me. I can't shake this thing. It's coming to, to dominate my life. Something powerful happens when we speak truth in this way. We have the opportunity to be not just forgiven, but healed. As we're told, you're forgiven, God forgives you, and let me tell you who you really are. Yes? We speak truth about ourselves. Um, Worship team, go ahead and come, come back on up. When, um, a few years ago, my wife Maggie and I were, were doing some marriage counseling, and um, we were in marriage counseling. That makes it sound like we were counseling. We were in marriage counseling together, and uh, our counselor, one of the images she gave us, she said, you know, in a, in a good relationship, two people are standing, and this is what she said, toe-to-toe and eye-to-eye. You see that, that image? Well, Brent, help me. We'll show, we'll demonstrate this. You all seem kind of sleepy this morning, so I'm just, you know, toe-to-toe facing each other and eye to eye now this is awkward would you look awkward for you i love me a little bit i love you man yeah. yeah i do too yeah like you can only do this for so long right thank you i'm gonna we're gonna be done now but this is the image speaking truth about ourselves in a relationship that is toe to toe and eye to eye, we have the opportunity to truly speak what is true about ourselves. I can't hide. I can't pretend. I can't be somebody different. I can't fake it. This is me. This is who I am. This is what's good. This is what's bad. So we speak the truth about ourselves. Second thing, we speak the truth about one another. We speak the truth about one another. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. I think this makes sense that these are the words we would speak to each other. Encouraging words. Words that build each other up. Especially if we really begin to understand that we inhabit a world that so often lies to us, deceives us, cuts us down, tries to fit us into a certain box or mold. This is is what we face all week long, right? And so in our relationships with each other, we have the opportunity to say, let me tell you what's actually true, Kim. I know this is what you've been told all week. I know this is the message that you've heard all week long. Let me tell you what's actually true about you. Let me build you up. Let me encourage you. Let me speak truth to you about who you are in Jesus. So this isn't just like, oh, let me feel, let let me help you feel better. Let me butter you up. Let me let me tell you who you are in Jesus. Because you've been told certain things that are lies, and you're and you're responding to certain things that just aren't true. But let me let me tell you what's true. You're a child of God, you're beloved by God, you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you lack no spiritual gift for this life, you've been commissioned. God to participate in his work in this world? That's who you are. You're healed. You're not defined by your past. Sin doesn't have a hold on you. That's who you are. Would you agree we need to hear this regularly? Being truthful people in relationships mean that we are, these are the words that we share with each other. This is why gossip is so dangerous. word for gossip in the Greek could be translated whispering. This is not toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye. This is something that's happening behind someone's back in the shadows. Paul writes this in Romans. Listen to the context of gossip. He's speaking about those who've separated themselves from God. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Does that seem a little harsh? I I mean, gossip, right? Like, come on, murderers? Inventing ways of doing evil? Paul says, right in the middle. Why? We begin to understand that our identity is truthful people, that we have been confronted by truth itself, and that we have been included in Jesus Christ. To gossip now, it's not just to disobey, it's not just to be disrespectful, it's not just to sin. It is, in fact, to undermine the very gospel itself. The gospel which says, no, no, we speak truth to one another. The gospel which says, no, because you have encountered truth, your identity is now truth for people. When we engage in gossip, we're not just, not just missing it a little bit. We're actually undermining our identity as truthful people who represent the gospel. We're not being truthful. We're not standing toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye. No, we're saying things in the background. We're undermining people. We're cutting people down. We're doing that little sarcastic thing that we do. And can we admit, Christians, we're bad about this? I'm just concerned about such and such. I just want you to pray for such and such. No, you don't. No, you don't. You want to... You want to say something, it feels kind of good to say something, to have that information, to have somebody else go, ooh, really? Speaking truth to one another is the antidote to this. Um, Maggie and I were talking about marriage the other day, and we've watched a lot of people get married, um, and we, you know, she was pointing out this, this interesting pattern. Um, when, when people are engaged, oh, they're great at building each other up. When people are engaged, they're great at encouraging each other, right? Like some of you have had this. It's almost like a sickly experience, right? Like you're talking to, you're talking to your engaged friend, right? It's like, well, you shut up about him already. My gosh. You know, anybody know what I'm talking about? And then they get married. And doesn't something change then? Yes. The person doesn't walk on water anymore, do they? And all of a sudden, what used to be these conversations that built up and encouraged now become kind of tinged with gossip. Well, you wouldn't believe what she did the other day, what he said the other day. Course, it doesn't just happen in marriage either. This happens in, in strong, tight, long lived relationships, friendships as well. Let me say just one I know I'm kind of perseverating on this gossip thing. Let me say one last thing about this. We can gossip against one another in community, but we also do this thing, and I've been guilty of this we also do this thing where we gossip against the community itself, we gossip against the church, the body of Christ. And we do this weird thing where we like, we, we somehow identify the church. That's the church. Let me tell you how the church is letting me down. Let me tell you how the church is frustrating me. Let me tell you how I don't think the church is doing enough for such and such or so and so. And I man, I've totally been guilty of this. Similarly, to when we gossip against one another, when we, when we do this move, when we gossip against the church, we're, we're undermining the gospel. Why? Because what is the church but us? There is no church outside of us. It doesn't exist outside of us. There is no new community covenant church that just, you know, kind of stands on alone and just hovers around being the church. It's you, it's me, it's us. There's no church without us. So there is no way for me to like somehow separate myself from it and say, oh, see, see how we're missing it. See how we're not doing this well enough, how we're not this enough. Why am I belaboring this? not just because I'm a pastor and I care about this kind of thing, but because as a church, we've said that our mission, our mission requires that we live as the people of God together. Our mission requires that our identity together is as the reconciled people of God demonstrating the gospel to the world. Does this mean we can ever be critical about the church? No. I'm probably the most critical person when it comes to church. But we must critique in a way that involves ourselves. You see? Because guess what? Your sinfulness contributes to this dysfunctional thing we call the church. Your baggage contributes to the ways that we're not quite making it, the way that we're not quite living up to our mission. Can I get an amen to that? And so, yes, we, we notice things, we talk about things, but we do it in a way that what builds up this is who God has called us to be. How can we do better in this area? How can we live up to our mission together in this area? hey, I'm seeing this thing that I I think we might be off track a little bit here. How can we grow up and mature in this area? Does that make sense to you? It's us. It's us. And and those of you who are kind of new, you're like, it's me too? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you're coming here regularly, yeah. It's us together, the people of God. Okay, I spent way more time on that than I meant to. Let me be quick here. The third thing that we do is we tell the truth about the world. We tell the truth about ourselves. We tell the truth about one another, and we tell the truth about the world. What is the, what is one of the simplest ways to proclaim the gospel? Jesus is Lord. Period. As we see the the, the apostles doing this after Jesus resurrects, Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. Now they go ahead to fill in some of the details, right? But, but being people, truthful people, means that we proclaim truth about the world. It means that we say no matter what it looks like around you right now, no matter who appears to be Lord, who appears to be King, who appears to be in charge, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. It also means if we're going to speak truth about the world, that we point out those places where Jesus' Lordship is being op- opposed. where 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 the kingdom of god is not being represented where people are being ostracized or marginalized where injustice is ruling we point these things that this is speaking truth to the world as well it's easier to not speak truth to the world when we speak truth to the world we have to pay attention to the world When we speak truth to those places where Jesus is being opposed, we actually then have to step into those places. Because here's here's, here's the thing. Uh, Being truthful people is less about our words than it is about our lives. We need to speak the truth. We need to proclaim the truth. We need to sing the truth. We need to read the scriptures so that God's truth dwells in us, digs into us. But being truthful people is way more about how we live. And so when we point out those places where Jesus' lordship is being opposed, we have to get enmeshed in those places. Living as God's peculiar people means that our lives, not just our words, our lives testify to Jesus' lordship. So do your relationships tell the truth? Does your marriage tell the truth? Do your friendships tell the truth? Does your community group tell the truth? Does your, does your connection and relationship in our church tell the truth? Could, could people look at your relationships and go, well, that, no, that's just different. That's peculiar. That's odd. Does the way that you live, does the way that you love, does the way that you communicate, does the way that you sacrifice in relationship testify to the truth of our God? good news, I think, for us is that uh, that Jesus is truth, And Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus is Lord and Jesus is truth, we can know the truth. We can know the truth. We can know the truth. But even, even more than that, even greater than that, is that we can live the truth as well. We don't just know the truth. We don't just say things about the truth. We can actually live the truth as well. And so are you living the truth? Do your relationships represent truth? The truth of who God is. The truth of what God has done and is doing. Can you think about that for a minute? Where, where, where are the places in your, in your relationships, in your friendships, in your marriage? Where, where, where are the places where there's deception? Where there's separation? Where there are lies that have been told that you have kind of claimed? Where do you need to put off falsehood in Paul's words and instead speak the truth in love? about community, it can seem like this abstract kind of vague thing, seek to be an authentic community. What is community? It's a network of relationships. It's a network of relationships. And if our relationships are not defined by truth, then we have no authentic community to offer the world. And so, And so living out the identity as truthful people becomes absolutely vital to our mission as a church. So, 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 where is your life telling lies? Where are your re- relationships telling lies? Where, where are your friendships um, living out of a of a deception, out of a separation? What falsehood can you put off today? Because. The, The the truth is here, is present. This is what we believe as Christian people, that Jesus is here, is present now. Um, So where are you called even now to live into, to take a step into the truth? So we ask, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you would speak truth to us. very hard, Lord, uh, to distinguish a time fact from fiction, truth from lies. Uh, It is so easy uh, to get caught up in um, the way things are, the way things seem to be. It can be so easy for us to assume that, well, this is just how the world works. This is how relationships work. Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us to separate fact from fiction today. Help us to see truth. God, show us, show us those places in our lives where we have believed lies. Show us those places where the way that we're living, where the relationships that we are in are not demonstrating and speaking truth to the world, but in fact are showing something else. Do this, Lord, so that we can once again come and know and celebrate your truth through this Lord so that our lives can be be known and be marked by the beauty and the holiness of your truth. I pray for my sisters and brothers today. I thank you for your truth God. I thank you that we can be ambassadors of your truth. Do what you need to do Do what you need to do. Do what you need to do here and now in every one of our relationships so that your truth can be displayed in all of its glory to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. For a little bit, so I want to. I'm going to pray for you and send you here in just a minute. But uh, what I want to do is invite whoever wants to to stick around for maybe like 10 minutes and just kind of respond a little bit to some of the things we encountered in the scriptures today. Uh, we've done this a little bit, uh, Eric. You've kind of pushed me to do this before, like to, to talk a little bit more as a church. So um, maybe it'll just be me um, sticking around. But I hope not. I want. I'm going to invite you to like come up here, up towards the front. And let's talk together a little bit about this idea of truth. And truth not being just a concept, but someone who's encountered us. Let's talk a little bit about what it means to live out of this identity as truthful people. Let's talk about ways that maybe our world lies to us and how, the peop- how we as the people of God, as God's church, are called to respond um, as, as truthful people. Okay? Does that make sense? I know for some of you that's like, that's not church. That's not how you do church. That's not... Sorry. <laughs> That's how we roll, <laughs> we're learning how to do church. So, um, so let me pray for you, send you, and then uh, just come right up front. Let's talk a little bit together. God, uh, thank you for uh, being truth to us. Thank you for rescuing us uh, from a world that, 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 that told us so many things that were just not true. Thank you for rescuing us uh, from an enemy, from the deceiver who work to undermine you, who work to uh, belittle us, who work to tie us up. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for not just giving us some words of truth, but for being truth. Help us now. Send us now, God, out to be truthful people this week. Remind us that you've given us everything that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Go in peace.